0: It's time for the LaneCast with Montana's very own Talkin' egg, Lane Nordland, your voice for agriculture. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Agriculture Conversation here on the LaneCast. It's been a busy fall and winter so far as the agriculture convention season is in full swing. And one of the latest events I attended was in Rapid City, South Dakota at the 101st South Dakota Farm Bureau Annual Convention and the Trade Show. While I was there, I was able to MC most of the convention and also moderate a panel that centered on public and private lands. I had three guests during that panel discussion, and they included Ryan Bruner. He is the South Dakota Commissioner of School. And public lands our next panelist was Ethan Lane with the Public Lands Council and from the Department of Interior Mr. Tim Williams I was able to record our panel discussion and when we come back we will have a great conversation about public and private lands and the important role that ranchers play in preserving public lands this is going to be a great conversation from three outstanding individuals that are experts in their field don't go away we will have the live taping of that panel discussion right after these messages your national Cattlemen's beef association knows there's what benefits cattlemen and there's what doesn't
1: trade the farm bill technology and conservation the decisions being made in washington affect the life of each and every cattleman. When it comes to the issues, there's simply no room for gray area. To us, it's as clear as black and white. Visit joinncba.org to learn more.
0: The Montana Stock Growers Association would like to invite you to attend their annual convention and trade show coming up December 11th through the 13th in Billings, Montana. Hotel reservations can be made at the Northern Hotel or Doubletree Hotel. For registration and the full agenda of events, visit mtbeef.org. We'll see you in Billings the 11th through the 13th of December for the Montana Stock Growers Convention. And again, a big thank you to our sponsors of the Langcast. As promised, here is the panel discussion from the South Dakota Farm Bureau Convention in Rapid City on public and private lands with South Dakota Commissioner of School and Public Lands Ryan Bruner, the Public Lands Council's Ethan Lane, and from the Department of Interior, Tim Williams. Enjoy. All right. Well, again, public and private lands. It's an issue that really actually comes up a lot during hunting season, it seems. But in my career as a farm broadcaster, it's an issue that ranchers in the West in particular are very... uh, aware of, they advocate for, and uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Actually, I know everyone except uh, Ryan here, we just met, but I know this is going to be a very informative panel, and uh, uh, especially coming from Tim here, he is with the Interior Department but uh he will tell it how it is and uh, i think that is what people truly respect about the changes that are happening out in washington dc but uh, we'll just start with uh well this is what happens when you get two lanes in a room you got lane nordland ethan lane it becomes uh a lane squared i guess we call it when we do uh, radio and tv but uh two, two lane road two lane road uh not a one lane so Things could get interesting here today. So uh, Ethan, tell me about yourself uh, for our friends that maybe have not met you in the role that uh, 50 years, the Public Lands Council has played in advocating for the more than 22,000 public lands ranchers. Uh, you just celebrated your 50th anniversary down in Park City, Utah uh, back in September. But let's talk about the role you play in Washington, DC,
2: you and your staff and your board members as well. Sure, thanks Lane. So as Lane mentioned, I. I, I my role in Washington is, is sort of a, a, a dual role. I am the executive director of the Public Lands Council, and for those that don't know what the Public Lands Council is, um, it, is it is truly uh, the only organization that really focuses specifically on federal grazing permit issues. So our board is made up of state affiliates from around the West, all of those states that have federal cattle and sheep grazing permits, Uh, as well as the uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the American Sheep Industry Association, and the Association of National Grasslands. Uh, That gives us a really unique ability to aggregate concerns and challenges from producers all over the West that are dealing with federal agencies, that are dealing with the impacts of the Endangered Species Act, uh, that are – having these meetings and going through NEPA processes on a continuous basis and it allows us to really aggregate those concerns and communicate them to Washington, um, sometimes unencumbered by any of the other stuff that we get into or get to fight about there in Washington. Uh, We are really lucky with my staff that uh, we get to focus exclusively on access to grass for ranchers. At the end of the day, that's kind of the standard I hold my staff to is, is this doing something to make it easier for our ranchers to get out on the ground and be where they need to be? Whether you're talking about the Endangered Species Act, whether you're talking about NEPA, whether you're talking about feral horses, uh, recreation use coming into those environments, land health, WOTUS, any of those issues can become an impediment to getting out on the ground on a schedule that's dependable and reliable and provides business certainty. On the other side of my portfolio, I am the Senior Executive Director of Federal Lands for NCBA in that capacity. I also look after those federal lands issues for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, but I also oversee Endangered Species Act policy nationwide for NCBA. Um, We've just found that that kind of goes hand in hand with the federal lands world because as a lot of you know, all of the bad federal (laughs) policy in the country typically comes out of that laboratory that is uh, 640 million acres of federal land in the West. Um, So there's a pretty big overlap there that allows us to really drill down, um, get some things done. Uh, So that's kind of how we spend our time in DC. All right,
0: thank you, Ethan, and uh, just last week, uh, Tim, you were at the Montana Farm Bureau, and I had sugar beet producers that are private land owners, just excited about the conversation you had with them, and uh, for our attendees here today, uh, tell tell me about your role with the Department of Interior, and uh, friends, you will just enjoy his perspective and his work with other agencies and with farmers and ranchers across the countryside but Tim I'll give you the floor uh, a quick introduction for yourself
3: yes um, uh, as he said thank you Lane I appreciate you all having us out here Um, as you all know uh, Department of Interior is the best land manager there is bar none Um, but (laughs) yeah act like it's a joke but anyways Uh, but no I was appointed by the president and by uh, Secretary Zinke and my job at Department of Interior I'm from Nevada and uh they literally, when they, they called me up, and said, hey, the president told us to give you a job. What do you want to do? And after they uh, shot me down for the White House, I was like, uh, you know, the president's already taken. I guess I'll, you know. They says, no, we want you to go to an agency. And uh, we want you to go to an agency, and we want you to work there, and uh, maybe later on we'll bring you over. And uh, the gentleman says, uh, what agency do you want to work for? And I was like, look, I don't know what the, you know, I'm not a, I run campaigns. That's what I do. I, and I uh, says, I don't know what agency it is, but whoever's in charge of BLM and Fish and Wildlife, it's not who I want to be in charge of. I so said they've made my life miserable since day one and that's where I want to be. So uh, they seen fit in, to send me a list of jobs that were available. I took the one um, uh, where I now have. They appointed it to me. And my job really is to be a liaison. You know, we serve a, a president, an administration, and a secretary that are not worried about breaking a couple eggs in order to get the job done right. As you all know, the federal agencies and one of the secretary's priorities is for us to go back to being a good neighbor again. Many of you here in this room have reaped the, the, um, uh, the unfortunate results of a heavy-handed federal government when it comes to public lands, whether it be an endangered species, whether it be a BLM National Park Service. But our job and my job here is to make sure that your voice is heard in D.C. and that uh, we're paying attention and that you, what happens in the West, the decisions that we make in D.C. don't affect the West in, a, in an adverse way. So thank you
0: and of course when we come to our local and state levels those public lands are are also very important to the economic success of our local communities uh, on on so many levels including agriculture so joining us of course is ryan bruner the south dakota commissioner of school and public lands Most of the people probably here know you, but maybe they don't. Uh, We we have a lot of maybe row crop guys, maybe uh, that really don't understand the importance of public lands, because that's one thing I have noticed as a farm broadcaster. A lot of producers from the Midwest and further east don't understand the importance of public lands in agriculture, and I think that's great why we're having this panel here today. But uh, I don't want to take up all your time here on my soapbox, but Ryan, uh, share a little more about yourself.
1: Do I get that time added back on, then?
0: Well, right? <laughs> I'll ask the speaker, and then we'll, you know.
1: Sounds good. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, as I said, my name's Ryan Brunner. I'm your commissioner of school and public lands for the state. Uh, yeah, about 98% of our land is rangeland. We do have a little bit of crop ground in the state of South Dakota. Uh, but we have the section 16s and 36s that we got in 1889 at statehood. Uh, we got them from the federal government, uh, gave them to the state of South Dakota and a lot of other western states. Uh, to help fund education and so our our mission is a a little more focused in that our job is to lease those lands at public auction to generate money for education in South Dakota Uh, however because our lands are leased at public auction uh, five-year lease with a five-year option we get more changeover than a permittee system or a preferential permittee system so we end up with a little bit of similar issues with with federal lands uh, but we also have some other issues that are unique to state lands because they are at least at public auction. Uh, they do change hands or can change hands from time to time. Uh, but they are a lot of times checkerboarded with private lands for sure, and checkerboarded with federal lands. And so we end up uh, working with the federal government, either the BLM or the National Grasslands or the Forest Service in a variety of different ways uh, because their land management decisions can impact uh, the management or impacts on our our state school lands. Um, not as much in South Dakota as some of the other western states. Uh, we were talking before, uh, before the panel started about some legislation our national group is pushing uh, to help with landlocked state lands uh, and the example is that the Bears Ears National Monument the original boundaries of that included hundred nine thousand acres of Utah State Trust lands which made it really hard for them to lease those lands out to give that money to education uh, We don't have some of those issues in South Dakota We traded out our sections in the Black Hills National Forest in the early 1900s uh, and some other stuff in the Badlands the one almost wilderness area that was proposed. We had three sections in, but that was never adopted. Scott Edoff is well aware of that. He kind of helped get some of that stopped back in the uh, early 2000s. And so uh, some of that doesn't apply to us as some of our other western states, but we do still run into some of those same issues. Uh, Working with private individuals, federal uh, permittees, You know, they always say when we're talking about public and private lands, they always say good fences make good neighbors. Uh, A lot of times when you've got public and private lands interlocked, we don't have any fences, uh, which means we have to work extra hard to be good neighbors because we've got a lot of land fenced in with private land, uh, running with pastures, running with access to water uh, in a lot of situations. You know, there's only uh, so much water in some of these western pastures or dams or rivers, and so you've got to have pastures fenced together, or the water might be on a BLM or Forest Service piece or on a state piece or on private ground, and so we have to work together to make sure we've got uh, good good grazing management and access to things like fences and water uh, so that we can all work together across to, across these uh Western South Dakota. A little bit of land we have is in eastern South Dakota. And the the place I grew up on, we're on the irrigation district, so we had rangeland, farmland, and a feedlot. So I claim experience with all three of those, uh, depending on what I need to uh, claim experience for for political purposes. But... uh, (laughs) Claim claim all three of those, and I, I have been in the state land Com- office for six years now as the deputy commissioner with Jared Johnson was commissioner, and then Vern Larson for two years, was been commissioner for four, and I was just reelected a couple weeks ago, as Larry said, to another four-year term, and so I uh, look forward to working with a lot of the folks here in this room for another four years.
0: Well, as you can tell, we have a rock star panel here for you today in Rapid City. And, uh, you know, we might just have to go till dinner time, maybe. Uh, no, you guys don't want to do that? As long as we get score updates on the football game. Well, yeah, we, we could do that. I mean, I got the MSU score for, you know, Montana, but uh, we can do that SDSU score as well. But uh, And it's actually 15 to 22. The cats are uh, making up their deficit, uh, just, just so you know. But, uh, Ethan, I'm going to start down on your end. There's a lot going on, especially with the transition back in 2016. Ethan and I were actually together in a hospitality suite down in Kansas City, Missouri, watching the election results pull in for the 2016 presidential election. And what we have seen in those past two years, it's amazing the difference that a voice uh, or someone that understands the importance of rural America has really done for ranchers and farmers, and especially public lands producers but we got endangered species we've had sage grouse we have recreation and of course public lands are for multi-use I'll give you the floor what, what are some of those important things that you are advocating on this week
2: well you know it's funny you think back to that that election night in 2016 and, and I think Probably you intentionally didn't mention that Chase Adams was the third person in that room. Well, that yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was funny because, I mean, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning by the time it hit all three of us that, wow, this is real. And within minutes, everybody was talking about the opportunities that were then going to be available with a with an administration coming in that uh, would look at these issues, maybe the way our voters look at these issues and our members look at these issues. So... Within a few weeks of, of the election and, and during the transition, we convened all of our affiliates, uh, ASI, NCBA, uh, grasslands, states, everyone who wanted to and had the ability to send a delegate or come. We put a meeting together in Denver at our NCBA headquarters and we, put, we basically assembled, over the course of two days, a transition document for the administration. What we did was go through everything on our list to make sure that what we were presenting to the administration was sort of an orderly list of what we need them to focus on, knowing full well that they were going to be drinking from a fire hose on day one. So the way we approached that was triage, first of all. Coming out of eight years of the Obama administration, we had some really bad policy that needed to be cleaned up. And then once we get some relief there, what I like to call big game hunting, on some of those key statutes and regulations that really dictate how federal lands are managed. So that's the Endangered Species Act, that's NEPA, and that's grazing regs. So in our first year, we spent most of our time on those reg relief issues. We had uh, one of the only successful applications of the Congressional Review Act to repeal the BLM Planning 2.0 rule. Um, uh, We led the charge on that, uh, along with Farm Bureau and others, and got something done that I think a lot of people didn't think we'd be able to do Um, which is get that to the president's desk ahead of some other things that were being pushed by far more well-funded industries. Um, We got two million acres of monuments uh, shrunk in Utah. Um, That's something that uh, to this day there are a lot of environmentalists with their hair on fire about, but the reality is that's a function of the secretary and the president listening to folks on the ground, which is kind of our drumbeat going in. We have sage-grouse plans coming back out to change the 2015 plans, and now we're looking at ESA rulemakings that are going to roll back some of the critical habitat guideline changes that we saw during the Obama administration. So we we saw a really healthy list of those items check off in the first year. We've spent the last year really focusing on those on those top-level reg reform issues. And and now that we're moving into sort of a new world with this Democratic Congress coming into place, some of our returning friends in the Senate with some unfinished business, um, you know, we think there is still a real opportunity um, to to get some substantial changes done in this president's first term, but we are gonna have to continue to really work to identify partners on the Hill that are willing to have those conversations. So, you know, our approach on ESA has been a two-prong approach. We spent three years in the Western Governor's ESA initiative. Um, you know, the idea and the marching orders we got from our members were to go find a solution that could get through the Senate. What they told us was they were tired of throwing press releases at the wall, they were tired of messaging bills, they wanted to see something that could move. So we invested in that process, and what we got out of it wasn't perfect, but it's something that gets us down the field, makes some changes, balances the scale for recovery, putting putting the states in an even position in those recovery planning uh, uh, teams. Um, So we think there's a closing window for for that statutory piece of the ESA, but thankfully Uh, Tim's agency and the president have worked hard on the regulatory side of that, so we have some substantial changes moving on the ESA regulatory front. Um, NEPA is out for, it's it's closed for public comment. We've worn a groove in the pavement between our office and CEQ talking about the need for NEPA changes. Um, They opened up a preliminary uh, rulemaking period and we're expecting a final document with some substantial changes to NEPA out of the White House. Um, So across the board, um, on our top level issues, uh, it's it's hard to be too despondent because we have a lot of good things happening. Um, you know, at this point, we're kind of focused on keeping our foot stomped on the gas and see how much more we can get done.
0: Well, and uh, when we come back, we're just going to continue to move down there. There's just been so much uh, benefit to farmers and ranchers, and I, I'm just going to keep repeating that. But, uh Again, we we discussed with Tim, it's a breath of fresh air for so many in rural America to have common sense in our bureaus, in our agencies, in our departments, and uh, Tim... Uh, There's so many issues that you can talk about, but what is one thing, uh, wild horses, you always have some good info there. Uh, There's wild horses in the West. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, Tim, from your perspective as a employee of the Department of Interior, why is it your mission to come and have this common sense approach to dealing with folks out on the ground and also maybe having to educate those in offices out in the Beltway and uh, elsewhere?
3: Well, I think it's, you know, the common sense, it, you all know this common sense and the government just don't go hand in hand. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the federal government or not. But when you talk about educating people, Washington, D.C. is out east. And pretty much everything that we manage, not a lot, but as far as if you want to talk BLM, BLM's out west. And I'll give you a perfect example of that a couple of weeks after I started, one of the uh, guys that started with me is from Florida. And he just comes marching in my office and starts getting all over my case because I hate wild horses. And he starts talking to me about how they're, you know, whatever. You know, you know this stuff. And I was like, uh, he's like, why do you keep wanting, you know, because I said some pretty dastardly things on how to fix this problem. And um, so I looked at him, and this be probably the, one of the few times I ever told him to get a briefing from BLM. And uh, I said, go down there and get a briefing. And he comes back up, and he goes, man, those things are bad. I was like, yeah, they are. I says, you know, they destroy the landscape. Here we are, we're fighting over the sage-grouse, and the wild horses are doing more to, you know, to to affect the the, uh, sage-grouse habitat. And that's what you have. You have people that are making decisions in D.C. that have no clue of what's going on here in the West. And it would think, you would think, that the common sense would be, hey, people that are making decisions for the West should live out West. Or not even that, maybe they're from the West, or maybe they, you know... (laughs) Something, you know, you would think that would be common sense, but it doesn't work like that up there. When people make decisions on wild horses, sage-grouse, when they make decisions on the ESA, they never get to see the effects of what the decision happens down here on the ground. When they revoke a grazing permit, do they ever have accountability? Do they ever get to see the results or the the impact of what that does to the community? What about when they refuse to allow out oil and gas permits at part of FLIPMA? You know, that's multiple use. That's part of what this public land's for. That generates revenue for the United States government. But they don't have it. There's no accountability. And so that's one of our, you know, our job coming in is to put the accountability back and to make sure that the local voice is heard back in D.C.
0: Now, Ryan, coming back to more of that state level, what are some of those key issues that you've been working on in your position, really trying to you know, work with private and uh, public users of land and also maybe with some of those recreationalists as well and making sure that it is multi-use and people know what multi-use is?
1: Well, we've got a little bit of a unique situation because we do we do allow public hunting on, on our state school lands, but they're considered secondary to the grazing. And so we don't have to follow the multiple-use designation like the federal government does. Um, we allow year-round grazing. We don't have to uh, follow some of the same rules and regulations. So We have a lot more flexibility at the state and local level to, to do some of those things, uh, to work with ranchers on, on access or on different things like that. But at the end of the day, you know, if it's somebody on the recreation side, they have to legally access the land. You know, we've got uh, section line law in South Dakota, but we've got some flexibility with that because we we have one constitutional mission with the the land grant. And so we're able to rely on that, whether it's... dealing with issues like Endangered Species Act and sage grouse. I think there are 24 of the 32 leks in South Dakota are, are worth within one mile of school and public lands and they they know where all 32 of them were. Uh, when we had a hunting season on them then a year ago I really wanted to use that map uh, but I didn't get a license for a sage grouse. Um, but you know we're able to, to use, use some of those things working with the federal government. Really a, a big issue for us as, as not just in South Dakota, but as Western States Land Commissioners. Uh, we're the second largest landowner amongst all the other Western States Land Commissioners after the federal government and the BLM. Uh, a big issue that we've been pushing along with Western... Why does
3: Western he keep pointing at me every time you yeah, say federal uh, government?
1: BLM, <laughs> I got Tim right here, uh, is, is the idea of... of it really it's, the term cooperative federalism gets used but really it's about state sovereignty when it comes to whether it's endangered species act or any one of these federal issues uh western governors western state land commissioners really a a real bipartisan effort you know public lands council's been helpful with that too the idea that the the folks as they said on the ground locally or at the state level you know having having more of a role in some of these management decisions or in some of these policy decisions uh we think not just here in South Dakota, but in a lot of Western states, that would be helpful. Uh, won't won't solve all the issues, and definitely won't solve them overnight. But the idea that when some of these decisions are being made, that the state has more input, either through the land office or through the Department of Ag, or through other uh, avenues, uh, something that I I think is important. You know, especially here in South Dakota. You know, I, I have my cell phone number on my business card, so I'm pretty easy to get a hold of if anybody has an issue, even on a night or on a weekend, uh, relating to an issue where it's getting a hold of somebody on a federal issue can be a lot more difficult and so the idea that you know states would have more of an involvement Uh, speaker ryan had a had a hearing yesterday where western governors testified on that same idea on state sovereignty and so trying to get that worked in so that there's consideration when it on those federal decisions on the impact on state trust lands or impacts on states um, as part of that federal rulemaking process i think is you know that window is pretty narrow for us uh, right now as far as legislatively but working with the the current federal administration has been very open to that uh, Tim was at our land commissioners conference for four days last summer whereas before we had hard a hard time getting somebody from the, the federal government even to attend a meeting and we had lots of time with Tim to be able to talk through some of those issues and I know a couple of states and and even Western governors when he was here in June uh, a couple of South Dakota issues were able to get solved a lot quicker than they than that had been dragging on for a couple of years and so there's lots of lots of different issues I think a lot of it comes down to a big push is for more state involvement because uh, that gives our local citizens, either here or in other Western states, more of a chance to be
0: close to the people who are impacted. And Tim, what did you want to add on that? Yeah,
3: I think that state sovereignty is such a big issue because it goes right back to the people that are better on the ground, and also with the endangered species, the the state is actually in charge of the animals or whatever species until they go, you know, go into the ESA, and then the federal government sticks in. But this, these, this is once again where you see this administration looking at federalism and trying to give the power back to the states. Um, if you take, for example, the sage-grouse plans that we're working on right now, which I hope to be done by the end of the month, the we went out to each individual state and we asked each individual state, what do you want done with your sage-grouse plan? Now, if you remember in the If if any of you were involved in the previous administration, when they went out there, they got the opinion from the governors, and they got the opinion for local input, and they went back to D.C., and guess what? That What came out of D.C. was not what any state uh, asked for. Every single state except one has asked for plan amendments. That includes Oregon and includes Washington. Every single state did not believe that their voice was heard. They believed their voice was heard, and it was ignored once it hit D.C., we have reached out to every single state, like I said, we've been working with the governor's office in order to come up with a plan to say, because every state's unique, you can't use a one-size-fits-all. What, what happens here in South Dakota is not going to work the same in Nevada. So with that, we just put out to the governors a couple of weeks ago a letter asking for their input with Fish and Wildlife to tell us how we can work with them better and how we can uh, reestablish the state dominance when it deals with species.
0: It's like we have an auction going on up here. Tim did, and then Ethan's like, yeah, buying some heifers here today. But uh, Ethan, uh, what do you have to add on that from the PLC standpoint?
2: Well, I think this is an important point because it really is, I mean, it's something that's sort of a leap of faith for the department to come in, and it's a leap of faith for stakeholders to encourage that. Because we can talk about the need to look to the states when we're in an Obama administration that's making really bad decisions, right? I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna get a better decision out of the state, and we know that. Now that we're in a, a friendly administration, all of a sudden California, Oregon, some states that maybe don't see the world the same way uh, uh, over on the coast as their constituents in the interior parts of their states do, I mean, those are, gonna, those are gonna result in some decisions that may actually be worse than what we see at the federal level. but. What we've seen time and again is even our affiliates in those states have, have continued to lean into that concept because if you get close enough to the ground, even in a state that may have a disadvantageous uh, uh, state government, you're still going to get a better decision most of the time. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's been interesting to watch play out because uh, them going to the states, I mean, that's exactly what we asked them to do on the sagegrass plans ask the states what they want. And that means Idaho's sagegrass plan changes are going to look a lot better than Oregon's are. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's sort of the, the good and the bad of doing that. But on the whole, boy, it's a, a whole lot healthier system watching play out now than what we saw before.
0: Now, also, recreation is a big part of those public lands. And uh, not too long ago, uh, at the 50th uh, Public Lands Council meeting down in Park City, Utah, I was able to attend that. And we went on a range tour. And we went, uh, was it, uh, would it be north or west of... Uh, Park City there? Sure. Yeah, sure. I'm just going with the direction. I, I don't know which way the sun came up that day. But going on
2: these... I think we made a circle.
0: We made a, we made a circle. Uh, but so going on these tours with these Alates, of course, there was wildfires going on around that region as well. And we go on these trails and hundreds Of people most likely most likely from Salt Lake were out there. They had two wheelers, they had four wheelers, they had their campers and it was just dust and they were I mean around all of our cars everything and they were just eating dust but they were also on those public land allotments and so there's a lot of conflict in there as well but how do how do we tie in recreation and the education with ranchers as well and uh, how do you solve the issue of recreation maybe taking away and having an impact on that ecosystem as well? Because ranchers always get blamed for a negative impact, but it's pretty impressive when you're watching how much compaction happens out on these public lands as well from uh, trail
2: use. It's, it's huge, and that, that day was... I mean, I'm out there a lot, as I know you are as well, and, and Tim, I think, as well. It, it was astonishing to see how many off-highway vehicles and recreational users. It was a traffic jam out in the middle of nowhere. And I think we're seeing that more and more. We hear over and over again about the popularity of public lands and the surging use of public lands. And I made this, this, this you know, comment the other day, if anybody remembers those old commercials uh, with the litter on the highway and then the, the Indian guy stand there and he has a tear kind of going down his cheek. I mean, I feel like that's sort of the position ranchers are starting to find ourselves in as an industry when you're putting a lot of your time and money and effort into maintaining something that is actually not yours, but that you have a preference right to graze. And these people come in from outside and they, they have a right to use it as well, but they don't respect it in the same way that maybe you did or, or, or you know, your family has for hundreds of years before that. Um, I've had multiple state directors of federal agencies come to me in the last month or so um, voicing elevated concerns about this issue knowing that, you know, it it really is sort of a a challenge to battle what is surging public opinion that boy more is going to be better and and Getting as many people out there to see what value we have in our public lands is a great thing And it is and I think it's important to make sure we we continue to to, to say that But at the same time, you know for permittees 22,000 permittees that live and die by land health standards and constant monitoring and evaluations and and whether or not those those uh, their, their lands are in, in healthy enough condition, can dominate whether or not they turn out. Um, for someone to kind of pull off the road and unload their four wheelers and make some new trails and, and tear through some country, spread some weeds. Spread some weeds. I mean, and, and, and not be required to even be aware of what that impact is, um, that's a real imbalance that I think we need to start talking more about. Now, how we solve that, I don't, I mean, I think we're still working through that, but it's, it's getting to the point where we just flat can't ignore it anymore.
0: Because ranchers aren't against access to public lands for hunting. I'm not. I I harvest a lot of deer and big deer on public lands. But it sure is an issue, especially as a sportsman when I'm out there and there's people running around on trails that aren't even trails. But uh, from the interior side of things, Tim, I know that, I mean, you probably have the golden ticket to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory on this one, right? Uh,
3: No comment. (laughs) No comment. We all want everybody to enjoy the public lands, and that's why I'll leave it. No, this, 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 is a, this is something that is serious, and it, I, I don't really have an answer for you, but I'll tell you what we are looking at going forward. Number one, we understand that, that the uh, rancher and the grazer, the people that have been on our public land have been there for generations, and uh, something else the other side doesn't understand is that, uh, for the most part, those communities take a better care of the land than we do. Not for the most part, I would say ninety nine percent point nine percent' take better care of the land and to hold them to the same to a standard such as range health and other things when we can let just go out and let some you know, recreation people go out there and they 'll tear up the land and then the ranchers' um, you know grazing might be taken away because of the simple fact that the land can 't handle it and it 's not his fault so We don't have an answer on that yet, um, but I'll tell you what we're doing, is we we actually have a recreation advisory board that we put together that is for the secretary that will go and advise the secretary on this. And obviously we have a lot of uh, sportsman groups and stuff on that. But we've also extended an invitation to uh, PLC and the sheep industry and to a couple of different industries that represent you to come sit on that board to make sure whatever decisions are made aren't in- and negatively impacting you. As well as we've invited them to the, the subject everybody likes, uh, migration corridors. Um, they're going to be sitting on that committee too. We're not at the phase right now where we're making decisions. We're just trying to gather the information and uh, see what's you know what's what is the best possible way of doing this with uh and doing it right and but we got to i think everybody agrees uh the people that are on the land for generations have been doing a pretty good job of it it's it's us
2: that's the problem this is an interesting issue too because there's a real tie-in to the election that we just saw last week if you look at the statistics that came out of that election we've got what 36 races uh where you saw a seat flip Uh, there are a few that are still outstanding and waiting to be decided but if you drill down into those results Something like 73% of the districts that flipped from a Republican seat to a Democratic seat contained a Whole Foods market. If you look at the seats that were held, something like 30-something percent, low 30s, uh, and I'm sorry, I don't have the exact figures. It's on my PowerPoint, but um, contain a Whole Foods market. So if – and there's nothing wrong with Whole Foods. A lot of our members sell to Whole Foods, and, I mean, it's great, and, I mean, it's the best butcher shop near my house inside the Beltway, but – If you have a Whole Foods market in your district, you probably live in the suburbs. That means that your interaction with public lands is is traveling out to them. Those are the people that shop at Whole Foods, buy four-wheelers in in a four-pack, not to use on their farmer ranch, but to go out and recreate with on the weekends. And they're also the people that write checks to the Sierra Club because they don't really understand what they're reacting to and interacting with when they get out on those public lands. So this is the urban-rural divide that we talk about playing out in real time, um, in this issue, uh, we don't look at it that way because we kind of tend to get down to the micro level. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's the that's the difference we're seeing um, in the in, in the country at the moment is those people that are using some of those resources and interacting in rural environments and the people that live there, and and have to exist day to day when they leave.
0: And the question is, how do we engage those individuals? What what what's the public lands council? What's do you want to? I mean, I'm going to come back to you, but. Uh, do you want to comment on – I'll let Ethan comment, then, of course, we're going we're gonna to come back to Ryan. I'm not going to leave you out on that discussion. But uh, that's the
2: age-old question. How do we make that connection? Well, I, I think that's the challenge we're all trying to, uh, uh, trying to address. You know, we spend a lot of time – in, in, in any, of the, any trade association, especially ag trade associations, we spend a lot of time and money trying to figure out how to do two things – reach our own members – And and reach out into the country and and, and reach new audiences. How many times have people in this room heard that we need to, in agriculture, tell our own story? Everybody heard that about 100,000 times? Who are we telling it to? Because I think a lot of times we make the mistake of telling each other our stories, which is nice. And and it it can reaffirm some of our opinions. But what we need to reach is that audience that's not thinking about the fact that they write those checks to the Humane Society of the United States, thinking that's going to dogs and cats and not to... Uh, uh, you know, a pretty radical agenda to push animal agriculture out of business. They write checks to the Sierra Club or to the Nature Conservancy. And they don't give another thought to the fact that when they go out and use those public lands and then go home and grill a cheeseburger, that they've, they've really done a few things during that day that made that cheeseburger harder to produce. And, and you know, trying to find ways to, to illustrate that in a non-confrontational way and help them understand that, you know, these are good people doing something really important for the country uh, even if we do get painted as the bad guys in a lot of uh, publications, um, that's something that we fight pretty much constantly. Did you want to talk about the airport here? Uh, well, I, I wasn't going to bring it up, but as long i mean, Tim and I flew in last night. And, um, you know, I always love flying into Boise, Idaho, because our beef council in Boise does a really good job of just plastering the airport. They had a giant inflatable Hereford and, and you know, huge signs everywhere. The Rapid City Airport has a PETA sign. And huh. I almost got back on the plane. I was horrified. But, I mean, it, 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 it really is, I mean, you know, they're reaching an audience there. And, and it's something that we need to be thinking about is how we, you know, how we start getting that messaging out in front of people that don't necessarily come to Farm Bureau conventions or National Cattlemen's conventions. And, and Ryan, uh, what's your opinion on this?
1: well to, to go back a, a little bit I think there's there's a there's a, a difference in, and I don 't know how we handle it necessarily nationally but between an interested party and an invested party and whether it's a public comment period or ESA or recreation or, or oil and gas drilling there there's always this where we've got people who live out here that are, are invested in the area are submitting comments on some of these same public rules in the Federal Registry, and you could see uh, hundreds of comments that say the exact same thing coming out of a suburb or a Whole Foods area. I'm going to give you a credit for that uh, as a political theorem, the, the Whole Foods political theorem. It's but it's Dave
2: Wasserman's, not mine.
1: <laughs> the, this idea that we have these interested parties are submitting comments whereas out here actually on the ground we have invested parties versus interested parties and i'm i'm going to steal an analogy that i heard about a year ago that it's it's like having bacon and eggs for breakfast right the chicken is an interested party the pig is invested so when, when it comes to some of these federal rulemaking or other, whether it's recreation or other things, we've got invested parties that live out here versus interested parties that are coming out to use it. And it's, it's hard to separate those two, but it's, it's something that needs to be taken into consideration um, and not to go back to state sovereignty. But that's why one of the reasons I push that so heavily is I think that helps maybe a little bit at, at the local level. Now, I can't, probably can't say that since there's a PETA sign at the Rapid City Airport, but we'll, uh, we'll look into that.
3: Yeah, you know, I just I want to touch something on that. We talk about the, the monuments. Um, so I was heavily involved with the, uh, the comment period and everything on reaching out to, for the monuments. And when you go to Bears Ears, all you hear is uh, all these people that were against us doing anything on Bears Ears. Well, guess what? Every, I would say every single legislature legislator in Utah that, was, that represented that area, every single county commissioner, and the tribe that lived on the land, not one of them wanted that monument. And what you have is you had tribes that were hundreds of miles away that wanted to be on the committee to, to manage it. You had elect officials that didn't, weren't even in the state. And you had outside groups that had nothing whatsoever to do with Utah, all fighting to keep a monument that the local people didn't want nothing to do with. And it's the same thing in Nevada with Gold Butte. There's nobody around there that wanted it. What about um, there's another range in uh, basin and range in Nevada? So when I was setting up the secretary to have the meetings, we'd meet with a pro group, a con group, and then a group that was uh, elected leaders. I couldn't find anybody to support Basin and Range. Yet we still took a million, 1.6 million acres off the table in Nevada. And this goes back to the same thing, that the vo- local voice should have a say-so on what happens with them locally.
0: Ryan, you have something to add on no, too. And I,
1: uh, that And it certainly has. There's There's been a, a big change in, in that from, from before when the... You know, previous things at the federal level through our national association, we were constantly submitting letters of comments opposed to things. Uh, it's, it's been a, a nice change to not have to play defense on so many of those issues. But one, one more thing I wanted to add on on the recreation side of it. A lot of it, especially in South Dakota, where we have section line law, where folks with GPS technology now are using section lines or cutting across what was the middle of a pasture, because there is a section line there, it has to do with where some of these lands are located. And even on state lands, we got section 16 and 36. It wasn't picked by a road or by geography. It was by geography. And one of the things that has happened at the national level, and it will take a little while, I think, to, to maybe filter through, and I was talking to these guys a little bit about it ahead of time, is in March there was a, what was called the Federal Land Transfer Facilitation Act passed unanimously through through Congress, which would allow the BLM to sell small parcel inholdings and with the requirement that they buy land somewhere else. So if you've got an 80 acres or 160 or these small inholdings in the middle of your ranch, uh, the problem I have with it is it didn't apply to South Dakota. Uh, the definition they used was 11... 11 states plus Alaska from the 1976 uh, flip uh, versus the 1978 Range Improvements Act. So the the 11 western states plus Alaska to the west of us have this tool now as a potential use. Uh, Our South Dakota BLM doesn't have the ability to sell those inholdings because we weren't included on the legislation. So that's something we may may look to fix and it's something that I've at least been talking to a few folks, even on the state level when it comes to state school lands, is there a better way to take some of these small pieces that are really integral to somebody's operation and they're inside somebody's ranch uh, and you have to go three, four miles or use a GPS to get to them to... Trade those out, or do a, a similar to a 1031 exchange to sell those and buy property somewhere else. And so, uh, the federal government has has kind of reauthorized the tool uh, that we'd like to get added to South Dakota at some point. And um, even on the state level, I guess it's something that I'm I'm interested in. It Would take some legislation to do, and have just been kind of looking working through some of the ideas as what that would look like. But that that would at least help with some of the access or some of the inholdings where you you've got people crossing over to get to some of those federal lands.
0: And, uh, of course, I, I think we really need to dive into some of those issues that we're currently seeing across the West, and that's wildfire as well. And we know that wildfire is one of the number one threats to sage grouse as well. And uh, th- this comes down to management. And I, Tim was really getting uh, grilled there in Montana last week for the Forest Service's uh, flaws as well. And we had to explain that, of course, the Forest Service is with the Department of Agriculture. But uh, Ethan, on the Public Lands Council side of things, we've really talked about that collaboration between the local and the state government's with the federal government on making sure that the bird was not listed on the Endangered Species Act. But uh, wildfire, that that is a big threat, but grazing plays a big role in preventing
2: wildfire. It it does, and and this is something we've run campaigns on in the past. We'll do it again. Um, It's something we feel really strongly about keeping in the minds of, of legislators on Capitol Hill, um, we have a publication called the Daily Roundup that goes out to about a thousand Capitol Hill staffers every day, um, and hundreds of other stakeholders. A lot of Department of Interior people read it. I'm sure Tim reads it every day. Um, and during wildfire season, we put the wildfire report in there um, with the stats every day, and and we do that as a reminder to make sure everybody knows exactly what it is that's happening in the West. And and um, you know, when we've gotten out on the ground with BLM staff. Uh, in particular, Forest Service has, has their, similar challenges, but the, the anecdote that really sticks in my mind is uh, we were out on an allotment in southern Idaho in the Bruno field office, and you had grass knee-high. Um, it was showing, like, less than 5% utilization, and they'd had something like 1,800 head in this pasture for uh, seven months or eight months, and they were pulling them off that day, and they had 5% utilization. And the BLM staff that was with us said, and this is... Right here, the finest sage-grouse habitat you will find for 200 miles in any direction. And then just this wick of dry grass leading right up to it. I said, well, wouldn't it be helpful to beat back some of these fuel loads so you can maybe have a chance of protecting this? And he said, yeah, it'd be really helpful, but we can't do it. And that that habitat that we looked at that day is now gone. Um, Along with it, you have 490,000 acres or so of really good habitat in northern Nevada that I just drove through on the way down to Winnemucca two days ago um, from the Martin fire and the Sugarloaf fire. Uh, that habitat, much of it, was in an area that hadn't been grazed in two years. Um, those were a direct result of the implementation of the 2015 sagegrass plans, and in those plans they had some bad science that tied grazing to the health of the bird, which we now know, because of a bunch of science coming out of Montana and elsewhere, that in fact, you need that grazing in there to manage those fuel loads, and, and where you see responsible grazing, you see sage grouse. And everybody in South Dakota that has sage grouse is nodding their head because if you want to go find sage grouse, you go find a ranch that's operating, and that's where you're going to find them. So, I mean, I think more and more people are starting to understand this. I think the president is starting to understand this. Um, well, and he just made a statement that is really getting taken out of context yeah.
0: about the fires in California and just speaking about the mismanagement.
2: He, he did. And, and, you know, when I woke up this morning, I was looking at the news and, and we're obviously a couple hours behind the East Coast. But on his way to California this morning, he made a statement about needing to rake up the forest. Now, you know, I mean, the, the man has his moments with words and, and, and I understand that. But if you listen to what he's saying, as a lobbyist that works on these issues, what I took away from it was, all right, he's getting it. Like, he's starting to understand that we need to manage the fuel loads and we can manage these catastrophic fires. Um, and, of course, he's being ripped to shreds for it. But, boy, I thought it was really encouraging because what he if you drill down past the way he said it, he, he definitely is getting the concept that, you know, the only way you manage to avoid massive catastrophic wildfire, and there is a difference between good fire that, that you know, can be a beneficial management tool and catastrophic fire with a, with, with a, you know, a poor rebound, um, there's a big difference there, and you can manage that. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's moving in the right direction. There's some stuff in the farm bill um, that, that will sort of help move that package forward. Steve Daines and Westerman, you know, have been working on some of those uh, categorical exclusion authorities. They got the funding piece to fix fire borrowing in a probes last year, and we're hoping that they'll get some of those final pieces. Um, if they can cobble together a farm bill this weekend, great. Um, that'll, that'll get that further down the road. Um, But, I mean, I I think people are starting to understand it. Um, It's still disheartening when we see the environmental community sort of take those same positions they always have, um, when we know in one-to-one conversations with them that they know better. Um, They have the science.
0: Well, and at the end of the day, South Dakota's recreation, the hunting, that's a big part of the economy, especially the pheasant hunting. And uh, we were talking, we should have went pheasant hunting after this uh, panel here today, but... uh, Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, Ryan. that up for us but let's talk about that though We still can we still can i mean it's probably better with the snow out there but uh, ryan on the uh, here in the state of south dakota you know we're talking about just management and how are you maybe working with some of those recreational groups with hunting sportsmen's groups on you know sharing the role that ranchers play in grazing and livestock's beneficial and that's also beneficial to the wildlife as well
1: so so a lot of that comes through through phone calls you know uh uh, a very frequent phone call that said we allow year-round grazing, so we'll get a lot of calls during the hunting season from folks saying, hey, you know, these guys have their cattle out here still, or they have their sheep out here still, and, you know, when it comes to federal land, they're, you know, they've got permit times, or, you know, we allow lessees to use it, uh, whatever fits in their operation. Now, some folks do, you know, have their land vacant during hunting season, but, um, We'll get a lot of you know, I'll get a lot of phone calls uh, from both lessees and hunters all during hunting season. So a lot of that is is one to one education. But I do end up at, at some of the sportsmen's conventions or even talking to just uh, I spoke a year ago to a group of all the game fish and park COs, the conservation officers, to explain more you know, more of the rules and regulations when it comes to school land and, and the difference in the, the role that we play and so that you know that that has helped a little bit. Um, you know, even even uh, even though we're a small state, sometimes we have uh, some misunderstandings on some of those rules. You know, our, our land is supposed to be walking only when it comes to hunting, um, uh, game fishing parks. Uh, at least some of the folks, you know, you get turnover. They thought that was a, an office rule, and I I don't have any law enforcement capability. Uh, coincidentally, they don't they don't give me a gun either. But uh, you know, they thought it was a school and public lands policy, so they weren't necessarily enforcing that because of its... if if it's not a crime or something they can issue a ticket for, uh, they thought it was office policy that it was walk-in only. And there actually is a state statute that makes it a class two misdemeanor that's in the Game Fish and Park statutes. And so they weren't aware of that, that when it comes to school land, that there's something that somebody's driving out there hunting uh, versus walk-in that they can be charged with. And so even, even amongst ourselves sometimes we have to make sure we're in some of those conversations to make sure that the lands are being utilized correctly and That folks are walking and not not driving, not littering, um, you know that they're they're using the land in a in a in a responsible manner. Uh, you know when it comes to the the grazing and the fire load side of things, we actually have a state law that. We really haven't had to enforce, but against waste. And so, if we had a fire load or an issue, or somebody wasn't utilizing the land, it's not just overgrazing. It's if, if there's waste occurring, uh, we have have some tools that we can use to utilize that. Uh, if we were, if we were ever in that situation, I've I've never had somebody call and complain about. That somebody wasn't grazing uh, the property our lessees are all using that land but uh, we have some tools there thankfully we haven't really needed them but uh, in some other Western states they have I know Arizona had some land out for lease where an environmental organization leased it with the intention of doing nothing with it uh, they declined to lease it to them they got sued in court and the state of Arizona won and so that was great case law even here in South Dakota we haven't had some of those same issues as some of those other Western states but you know there's a, an example where Arizona stuck to their guns and said no we need the leastest to somebody who's going to utilize it for good range management and, and for all those issues. And uh, they got sued and, and they still prevailed.
0: And to put Tim on the spot a little bit here in Montana, we have a group called the American Prairie Reserve nonprofit. Tim knew I was going to bring this up, but uh, they They run bison, uh, but they do not view them as livestock. They want them to be free roaming, and this is an issue I think all Western states should be aware of because they're buying thousands of acres of private land. They, of course, acquired the leases to the public land then, and they, uh, and uh, th- this is an issue, of course, with our local officials that maybe are supporting their theory of having free roaming bison. And my uh, range professor at Montana State University, Dr. Clayton Marlowe, always put it best. Uh, the first time I remember this man, he said, A bison is just a big, ugly cow. And it's true. And uh, but what they are proposing is to rip out all the interior fences and they're requesting year-round grazing. Um, and I just think this is something that all ranchers and public lands users should be aware of. And uh, what, what what's the interior, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, Tim? That I'm in
3: South Dakota right now?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, this is, uh, uh,
3: many of you might know we have a secretary for Montana. Um, he has very strong opinions on this. but. We go back to the same thing, is, is, is and this is, we haven't solved this issue yet. we we're, they're working on it right now, the solicitors. But seriously, the common sense approach says if, it's, if the cattlemen have to go out there and ranchers have to go out there and they have to abide by these rules and so does everybody else who has to get a grazing lease, right? So what makes it right for what one group to go out there and get a lease and then guess what, this is a come on, you know, what time of year, get off at one time of year, but because they're bison, then all of a sudden they get to get a year-round lease. Well, if that's good enough for them, it's good enough for everybody else. The second question you have to ask yourself is the fence issue, are they cows? Are they getting grazing leases because they're cattle? Well then, if they're cattle, they have to have fences. That's the way it works. And if they're not cattle, and you wanna take the fences down, then why should they be getting a grazing lease? That's my opinion on it. But I'll tell you, we're working on it. We have very strong opinions up in D.C. regarding this. But I will tell you something else, though, regarding it. And it's not our job, and the Prairie Reserve is, is a lot of private land. And it's not our job to come in there and tell private
2: landowners how to
3: run their land. But, Dad dadgummit, we're going to tell you how to run public land. Exactly.
2: Thank you. Ethan. I, I mean, I, I have to give them credit. The American Prairie Reserve is probably the best-run large-scale con operation I have seen in a really long time. <laughs> And and if you look at the way they've proceeded, and and I sat in a briefing in Washington D.C. at the Willard Hotel, um, and unfortunately Perk was involved in it, but I don't think they really understood what they were doing. Um, And you know they they had these guys up there that were on the border, and um, if you don't know, APR has gone as far as creating a beef brand that they call American. uh, They call uh, it Wild Sky Wild Sky beef, and and it's supposed to be predator friendly beef. I just want that to really sink for a minute. And and you know they don't actually have anybody to sell. This predator-friendly beef because um, there aren't any producers producing it. I guess because they all got eaten by. Well, they wolves. don't buy any. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, they,
0: they don't buy beef. They right. just buy beef from a processing plant.
2: But the guys that they had there that had sold out that were that had been flown to Washington D.C. to stay in a $500 a night hotel room and talk about how wonderful APR has been didn't think to not include the fact that what they're really doing is just getting a check from hay for these guys. It's New York money coming out to, to Montana to give this impression that, gosh, we're building this, this utopian environment where bison can graze, and all they're really doing is buying hay for these guys to not have to turn out. And, I mean, it, it's, a, it's an absurd proposition, and it's run by, like, a lot of these things, and we see it a lot. We, you know We call it Call it uh, Green Decoy, call it AstroTurfing. You know There are a lot of names for it, but these sort of things that are branded to appeal to a Western audience that are coming right out of New York City. And, I, I mean, that's the financial center. That's where you're seeing a lot of the money come from. And the agenda that's, that's behind it is, is right along with it. It's, it's, it's a bad deal, unfortunately, or fortunately enough, um, as you heard from Tim. I mean, we're sleeping a little easier at night right now. Um, because they, they definitely, I think, have a better understanding of this issue than the previous administration did.
0: And I'm not trying to make this about Montana, but it's just a scary yes, situation. You are. Well, I mean, it is the big sky state. And Where Montana State University beat the Grizz 29 to 25, and for you SDSU fans. 35 to 14, the jacks are in the lead. so congratulations there. But uh, kind of bringing that back to more state issues uh, on our public and private lands. let's just talk about the economic benefit though I touched on that earlier, you know those the land grants, the school sections. how much does that give to your South Dakota communities and not just the benefit for the ranchers but for our communities across the state?
1: Well, and and one thing that makes our state lands different that I always like to point out is that our lessees all pay property taxes. You know, so if you lease a section of state school land in the state of South Dakota, you pay rent to the state, where that money gets divided up to every school. Every school uh, child in the state gets an equal amount, but our lessees and a lot of our there's a lot of folks here in the room I know lease school and also pay property taxes to the local county, local school district. And so we're not fighting this payment in lieu of taxes battle or, or whether or not all the payment in lieu of taxes were, were there received or lawsuits tied to that because our lessees, since, since the, the 1970s, actually, Walter Dale Miller, if I remember it, was a legislator at the time. I think Walter Dale may have actually went on to be Lieutenant Governor, but I think he sponsored that legislation that put those that taxation system in place so that we still have support at the the local level as well as then our lands being leased at public auction are generating over $8 million a year that we're able to give to those beneficiaries. Uh, the lands that have been sold, that money's invested in the stock market, and then we get a little bit of oil and gas money, uh, not nearly as much as our other western states. But um, you know, over the last five years, we've gone from about $7.4 million to education. Uh, this year, we're over 12, um, and we'll probably be up again. Um, in another year just because all, all the areas of the office are, are generating money but we're able to generate um, you know money for for local schools and then we still have the property taxes that stay at the local level and so that's that's been a big benefit uh, when it comes to state lands is, is that taxation change and then at the at the local level you know the ranchers are able to use that as part of their operation uh, a lot of times you'll even see ranches listed for sale that list the number of federal state and private acres uh, because it is a five-year lease with a five-year option and we get called from appraisers all the time wondering how many years are left on the lease and they're trying to value those leases in terms of what the what the amount is and the terms left Uh, so we provide a lot of input on that when it comes to to grazing too as to what what that does for for local producers
3: Tim yeah um, move from the state to the federal level the federal lands right now the Department of Interior and uh, now I can say this because the secretary says it but uh the, the, the Department of Interior is the largest income generator for the, for the federal government. Now, where people argue with us, they say the uh, IRS is larger income generator, and he calls that a collection agency. So, uh, but they are, we, we uh, anytime you have oil and lease sales, Anytime you have, uh, we get a royalty off all the mining and stuff on public lands. And so what happens is we just literally did the largest oil um, and gas sale in history down in New Mexico. We raised almost a billion dollars. Now, this is not off on what's coming on. This is companies that want to take a risk and want to uh, take some of the land in order to, do the, to drill. The state of New Mexico got a check for $500 million out of that. So when you look at this and what's going on is the, the, uh, the other side has restricted land access for all the, di- the different industries and grazing and, and uh, you know mining and timber. take for instance the Oregon has ONC counties and these ONC counties have forests and the whole purpose of the forest for the ONC Act passed by Congress is to be regenerating forest that is, ha- is harvested. All right. So these are forests that are grown specifically for timber because the previous administrations have not wanted timber and they don't agree with timber. They have stopped the BLM from letting the timber out. So what's happened? The the county commissioners have to close the libraries. They're having to close their emergency services. All the sawmills have got up and left. And then what happens to that land then that's overrun with timber and it's overrun with brush? It burns up. And when it burns up, what are we stuck We're stuck with nothing. Instead, the federal government has to go in there and pay to bail out these counties. And this is our own fault because we don't allow the American people to do what they need to do in order for us to get some of this stuff going up. When we talk about fire, if I can real quick, there will be some stuff coming out from the White House. This president and the secretary. The president, I, I want just to say he's mad over this whole situation, right? Um, This is absolutely ridiculous. If you look at it from a pure business standpoint, we are losing millions and millions of dollars that should be coming into the federal government because of the simple fact that we're burning it up. We're literally burning cash. Then you turn around and you talk to BLM. This is a practice that BLM has done. You go in there and you do a clear cut to stop the fire and a logging company will come in and say, hey, can we get that timber out of there? If they get that timber out of there, then we will get a royalty off that. We're not having to pay anything. BLM says no and they go and block it off and let the timber rot. This is obviously a major problem. Then you got all these piles of timber that the bulldozers put up there, and those things catch fire, and then we burn the forest all down again. So you can expect something by the end of the year to come out from the White House regarding fire, and you can expect the Department of Interior to turn around and we're going to do our part. And that includes getting cows back out on these land rather than waiting three years. I was at the Soda Mountain Fire. Grass is this high. It's just waiting to go again and for the simple fact that some bureaucrats back in D.C., uh, this, whatever, they don't want to let cows back out there. And the simplest thing to do is let the cows get out there and get that down so
0: we don't lose it. We got about 20 minutes, and uh, I, want, I want to give you some closing remarks, but I know the audience is going to have some questions. And if we go over that 4 o'clock limit, we might, I won't get in trouble too much, will I? Oh, I might, I might. But, so, uh, Ethan, I, uh, when I interviewed Lieutenant Governor, actually now Governor-elect, Brad Little of Idaho, he's a past Public Lands Council president, And a rancher from over there, what really struck with me the most in our TV interview was, you know, he he really stressed the importance of taking advantage of administrations that are good to ranchers, but even working more hard when we have those administrations that don't agree with us. And that's what the Public Lands Council is doing for those public lands ranchers that, you know, there's 22,000 of them. Not all of them are members but they all benefit from the work that your team does. Again, I just wanted to point that out, but uh, what, what are your closing uh, comments? Anything you want to say on that before uh, we uh, throw it over to
2: questions? Well, so actually, the way the PLC is organized, in South Dakota, for instance, South Dakota Public Lands Council pays dues to the National Public Lands Council know that. on no. behalf of all permittees in South Dakota. So whether you write your check as a permittee to South Dakota PLC, which you should definitely do, um, PLC in South Dakota is writing that check to us. So, you know, different than um, uh, other kinds of membership organizations, I don't – it gives me the freedom to not care whether you've paid or not. I care because, I, you know, I want to be able to pay my staff and go swing hammers at people. But, I mean, you know, as far as calling with an issue, we're agnostic on it. Um, We consider every permittee a member. But, uh, you know, I I mean, it it really is – uh, I think, and you, you hear it today from, from Tim, this is, a, this is a real opportune time for us to be pushing these issues, and, and there's, no, there's no secret sauce coming out of the Department of Interior. They're doing excellent work because they're listening to stakeholders. That doesn't mean taking down marching orders from us and oil and gas and timber. I mean, I sit in a lot of roundtables, um, President Dave Ellison, our outgoing president, uh, the PLC over the last two years. We had him back in, in, in D.C. for uh, reg reform panels and NEPA panels and ESA panels. And, and you know, right alongside us in those panels were people that we vehemently disagree with, that got their their moment in the sun to voice their opinion as well. And that is a real shift from the Obama administration where, and, and this is just D.C. politics at its finest, um, and maybe Dale's shop had better luck than we did on this, but we'd have my mic off. Um, We'd we'd add our name to the press release list at the Department of Interior and they'd edit us back off. So I mean you literally, Tim knows, (laughs) it's I mean it's the kind of games that that are played and and you know I mean for all of the negative press this administration has received the, the reality is what they're really doing is just bringing everybody in and listening to all sides before they make a decision and if you do that you will get to a better conclusion. Than if you just have the you know Parks Foundation and uh, you know the the enviros and the and the animal rights activists and, and you leave it there, um, it, it really is. It's been fun for the last two years to have some of these conversations, but it, it just shows you how many issues we have. You know, the system of public lands that we have in the West was created by accident, and and here we sit with 640 million acres of it left um, that we need to figure out how to how to manage. And, you know, we view ourselves as a critical component of that management. Public lands ranchers manage about 250 million acres of federal land, and they do it while owning an adjacent 130 or 140 million acres of private land. That makes us the third biggest landholder right after these guys. If you look at those land use maps in the United States, grazing is the biggest chunk. And most of the time when you see those maps, They're in an an outlet um, like, uh, I forget where it appeared last, it was um, uh, one of those kind of think piece magazines, but it was acting like that grazing chunk is not used for anything else. What's used for everything we've talked about today? It's used for timber, it's used for mining, it's used for oil and gas, it's used for recreation, it's used for wildlife conservation, water recharge, you name it, all of those things are happening in that environment, but the one constant underneath it is grazing. It's the one use that can coexist with all of those other multiple uses and provide a layer of management at the base. So we kind of get bombastic about this sometimes, but you don't get to have any of the other ones unless we're there. So if we're not in the room and we're not having that conversation on, on terms that, that end with ranchers saying, yep, I can live with that. I can manage. I can manage these resources. None of the other parts of that conversation really matter because they can't continue. So, you know, we, we are excited for the next couple of years. Um, I think if, if, if ever for a room full of producers, uh, regardless of what your uh, corner of agriculture might be, if this isn't a testimony of why you should vote, I don't know, I don't know what is. But, I mean, it, there, there's, there, there's, a, there's a real reason to show up and make sure that we're putting people in office that are willing to listen to those, to those issues and, and make decisions that are, that are beneficial. Tim said it when he came in. You're gonna be pissed at me about this later. Um, Tim said it when he came in, he's a campaign guy. He said, I wanna be in charge of the agencies that run BLM and Fish and Wildlife Service. Look at what he's, he's, he's absorbed in the last year and a half, and you've got an entire department that's having those conversations. USDA, uh, to a certain extent in some areas, I'll leave Forest Service out of that, um, they're doing the same thing. Um, you know, I, I think that it's a really incredible opportunity for us to uh, push the ball forward and get some things done and yeah, that might mean playing defense in the Bernie Sanders administration afterwards. But I think it's worth it. I mean, we've got an opportunity.
0: Tim, I'll give you the uh, uh, the floor for your final comments here before questions. I'm
3: glad because I went after him because I have a couple comments. <sighs> no, but I want to I want to you know talk about one thing. And Ethan's right. This is not they come to us with marching orders. Congress has given the Department of Interior, especially when it comes to public lands a law that we have to uh, uh, abide by, and that's called FLIPMA. And FLIPMA means multiple use. And all we're doing is getting back to what FLIPMA said, and that's multiple use. It doesn't mean we favor the grazing over the oil and gas extraction, over the recreation, or anything like that. What that means is that we get back to a multiple use on the public lands, and we don't just lock the public lands off from the public. I think that's very important. And what else um, Ethan actually said, and that is strike while the iron is hot. You have an administration that is up there that is willing to listen to you. All right, And they're willing to do what we think needs to be done. Now, I get a lot of complaints we're not doing enough. And sometimes I agree with that. But at the same time, when we do this, we have to do the public comment. We have to do everything because at some time, there will be an administration that is not friendly to you. There will be an administration that wants to put it back to the old ways. And so, one, I ask that you stay involved. You get your public comments in because they're actually read. They're listened to. And, two, don't give up on us yet and uh, just, you know, hang in with us and uh, you know it's just been an honor and really thank you guys for letting uh, me come on out here
0: all
1: right Ryan well in in wrapping up I just say thank you for having me Uh, state lands are a little bit different than federal public lands uh, but we have the school children as our beneficiary which from a policy perspective gives us something when it comes to land management or examples of land management um, to rely on when we're dealing with with federal policy issues that the things we're doing benefit not just grazing and and ranchers across the West that's for the benefit of our our school kids. And so that's uh, something that we've tried to, to push when it comes to things like state sovereignty or working with some of these federal rules and regulations. So I appreciate the opportunity to be part of the panel uh, and a big thanks to, to Ethan and Tim for flying out. You know, I, I drove over from Pierre. These guys flew in uh, flew in from Washington, D.C. to be a part of this panel, which I think shows it, uh, their commitment to some of these western states' issues. And as I said, Tim was here last summer and then he was at a meeting I was at for three days in Minnesota last year uh, and Ethan has said he's been on the road with Tim all week. And that both of these guys are, are out of D.C. but they're really putting in the time to be boots on the ground out here to get that feedback. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to visit with them one-on-one and, and catch up on things going on out in D.C. and so I hope while they're here use that opportunity to visit with them some more. Uh, you can get a hold of me and Pierre anytime but uh, these guys are here and really appreciate them taking that time to go that extra mile to, to fly out here and so on behalf of everybody I'd just like to say thank you from a South Dakota perspective for making the trip out and next time we'll, we'll go pheasant hunting I promise.
0: Again, a great panel discussion on public lands at the South Dakota Farm Bureau Convention with Ryan Bruner, the South Dakota Commissioner of School and Public Lands, Ethan Lane with the Public Lands Council, and the U.S. Department of Interior's Tim Williams. Thanks for tuning in to this special edition of the LaneCast. For more information and to subscribe to the show, you can find the LaneCast on your Android and Apple devices and visit nordlandcommunications.com for more information. Thanks for joining the Agriculture Conversation. Have a great day, friends.
2: Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and nordlandcommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.